0: Section 27 of The Lives of the Queens of England, Volume 8, by Agnes and Elizabeth Strickland. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Catherine of Braganza, Chapter 2, Part 4. There was one point on which a close confidence and a sympathy of opinion, little suspected by the world, subsisted between Charles and Catherine. This was on the subject of religion. Charles, although the companion of scoffers and openly applauding the profane language, the ribald jests of Buckingham, Rochester, and all the godless crew, male and female, by whom he was surrounded, was secretly impressed with respect for the principles of his queen. Bigoted and narrow-minded as Catherine undoubtedly was, and in practice superstitious overmuch, There was an atmosphere of holiness about her, a purity and innocence in her conversation, and an integrity in her conduct, which showed that all she did was from motives of conscience and as matters of duty. Charles had received from his mother, in the tender season of infancy, the first and only impressions of a religious nature that were ever made on him. Those impressions, without producing any of the fruits of Christian conviction, piety and purity of life, gave him a strong bias in favor of Catholicism, which haunted him to the tomb. He struggled against it, for it militated no less against his self-indulgence and habitual love of ease than his interest, and succeeded in deceiving the world into the idea that he was an infidel. His brother was, for a time, deterred by his persuasions and commands from avowing his conversion to the Romish Creed, but Charles, though he on one occasion, lamented with tears that he could not enjoy his religion, did not love it sufficiently to make the slightest self-sacrifice to prove his sincerity. It was in reality merely a matter of opinion with him and not of faith. The queen kept up a correspondence with rome and this served to cover the clandestine intercourse of others though the suspicions it created were most assuredly the cause of her name being subsequently implicated in the accusations connected with the popish plot the re-establishment of the roman catholic worship in england was one of the leading articles of the secret treaty which was negotiated by henrietta duchess of orleans between louis the fourteenth and charles the second After a long correspondence, that princess came to Dover for the purpose of concluding it. Charles and Catherine met her there, and the deep state intrigues that were discussed between the royal brother and sister were veiled beneath a succession of feats and rejoicings, which took place in honor of her arrival. It was the first time Catherine and this princess had met, and when the latter returned to France, she spoke in the most friendly manner of her royal sister-in-law. She told her cousin, Mademoiselle de Montpensier, that the queen was a thoroughly good woman, not beautiful, but virtuous and full of piety, and that she commanded the respect of everyone. This friendly testimony to the merits of Catherine was borne by the best-loved sister of her lord, almost with her dying breath, for in three weeks after her return to France, this beautiful young princess expired after a few hours of agonizing illness. The ratification of this secret treaty placed Charles in the degrading position of a pensioner of France. Louis XIV had previously bribed the wives and mistresses of such of his ministers, as had declined receiving money or jewels with their own hands, and the dispatches of Rovigny and Barleon contained sufficient evidence of monies paid by that sovereign to Algernon Sidney and others of the Republican party, who under the pretense of patriotism were the hireling tools of a foreign power, to stir up civil strife in their own country. Charles II was aware of the corruption of friend and foe, and with a laxity of principle, scarcely more disgraceful, preferred a peaceful appropriation of the gold of France to his own use, to its being lavished on his subjects in the shape of bribes for his injury. His extravagance rendered him needy and his indolence inclined him to avail himself of supplies that cost no sufferings to his people. The cruel imposts of cromwell's government had afforded the precedent of collecting an enormous revenue by taxing articles of general consumption, but a revenue torn from the necessities of the people could never have been collected without the aid of military despotism. Charles liked better to draw on the exchequer of his wealthier neighbour of France. There were times when the spirit of a British monarch stirred within him, and he would fain have broken from the chains, but Louis threatened to publish the secret correspondence with a plain statement of the transactions that had taken place between them, and rather than endure the disgraceful exposure, Charles submitted to follow the line of policy dictated by him implicitly. A few weeks after the death of the Duchess of Orleans, Charles II sent out a yacht with a confidential person to bring to England, the beautiful Mademoiselle de Carouel, whom he had seen in attendance on her when at Dover. She came and he compelled Queen Catherine, out of respect as it was pretended, for his sister's memory, to receive her into the number of her maids of honor. She soon became the acknowledged mistress of Charles and was the most troublesome of the unprincipled intrigants of that reign and one of the most extravagant. There was a great ball on the ninth of February, 1671, at the theater in Whitehall Palace, in which the queen and all the ladies of the court danced. The greatest fault of Catherine of Braganza, observed Sir Walter Scott, was her being educated a Catholic, her greatest misfortune, bearing the king no children, and her greatest foible, an excessive love of dancing. It might have occurred to the good people of those times, that loving a ball was not a capital sin, even in a person whose figure excluded her from all hopes of gracing it, that a princess of Portugal must be a Catholic if she had any religion at all, and that children, here we take leave to finish the sentence in the words of Holy Writ, are a gift and heritage that cometh of the Lord. Yet these obvious considerations did not prevent her from being assailed with the most curious lampoons on every occasion. How a man, making pretenses to high moral feeling and sanctity, like Andrew Marvel, could have found it in his heart to address lines like the following, to so amiable and unoffending a princess, it is difficult to imagine. Reform, great queen, the errors of your youth, and hear a thing you never heard, called truth, Poor private balls content the fairy queen. You must dance, and dance damnably, to be seen. Ill-natured little goblin, and designed for nothing but to dance, and vex mankind. What wiser thing could our great monarch do than root ambition out by showing you? You can the most aspiring thoughts pull down, for who would have his wife to have his crown? Our pious bard brings his coarse series of personal insults on his royal mistress to this climax in conclusion. What will be next, unless you please to go, and dance among your fellow fiends below? There, as upon the Stygian lake you float, you may or set and sink the laden boat, while we the funeral rites devoutly pay, and dance for joy that you are danced away. As a further instance of the unprovoked malice of Andrew Marvel, against poor Catherine, is the injurious manner in which her name is needlessly dragged by him into another of his pasquinades, on the impunity with which the Duke of Monmouth and his guilty associates appeared at court after their barbarous murder of the unfortunate parish beadle on the night of february twenty eighth, sixteen seventy one, in a drunken frolic. There was to have been a grand ball the same night at the palace, which was prevented in consequence of the confusion and horror caused by the news of this outrage, which gave occasion for the following observation. See what mishaps dare e'en invade Whitehall, the silly fellow's death put off the ball, and disappoints the queen, poor little Chuck, who doubtless would have danced it like a duck. Yet shall Whitehall the innocent the good, see these men dance all daubed with lace and blood. The severest castigation which satire could inflict had been richly deserved by Monmouth, but what had the ill-treated wife of his profligate father done, that her name should be mixed up with his crimes? The failings of Catherine of Braganza, and there are fewer recorded of her than of many a princess who bears a brighter name in the historic page, appear at all times to have proceeded from want of judgment, rather than from a willful desire to act amiss. They certainly were not of the class that could warrant any one in chastising her with scorpions in the shape of ribald rhymes. Evelyn was certainly greatly annoyed with her on one occasion, but their hurt offense only amounted to a want of taste in the fine arts, and a deficiency of that generous patronage of which the princes of the royal house of Stuart afforded so noble an example. Evelyn, it seems, was deeply interested in the success of Grindling Gibbon, afterwards so celebrated for his exquisite carving in wood, whom he had by accident discovered by looking through the window of a poor solitary thatched house in the fields near Say's Court, and seeing him engaged in carving the large cartoon or crucifix of Tintoret, containing more than 100 figures, exquisitely executed, with a frame wrought in festoons of flowers, the most delicate and lovely that could be imagined. Evelyn asked if he might enter. The artist civilly opened the door and permitted him to examine the work, which that accomplished virtuoso considered more beautiful than anything of the kind he had seen in all his travels. He asked the price, which was one hundred pounds, Evelyn considered the frame alone well worth the money, and the next time he saw the king, he mentioned the young artist and the manner in which he had found him out, and begged his majesty would allow him to bring his work to Whitehall. Charles graciously replied, that he would himself go and see the artist, but probably thought no more of it till the first of March, when Evelyn told him, That Gibbon and his work had both arrived at Whitehall, and were in Sir Richard Brown's chamber, and if his majesty would appoint any place whither it should be brought, he would take care of it. No, says the king, show me the way, I'll go to Sir Richard's chamber. Which he immediately did, continues Evelyn. Walking along the entries after me, as far as the Uri, till he came up into the room, No sooner was he entered, and he cast his eye on the work, than he was astonished at the curiosity of it, and having considered it a long time, and discoursed with Mr. Gibbon, whom I brought to kiss his hand, he commanded that it should be immediately carried to the queen's side to show her. It was carried up into her bedchamber, where she and the king looked on and admired it again. The king being called away, left us with the queen, believing she would have bought it, it being a crucifix. But when his majesty was gone, a French peddling woman, one Madame de Bord, who used to bring petticoats and fans and baubles out of France to the ladies, began to find fault with several things in the work, which she understood no more than a monkey." So in a kind of indignation, I caused the person who brought it to carry it back to the chamber, finding the queen so much governed by an ignorant French woman, and this incomparable artist had his labor only for his pains, which not a little displeased me, and was fain to send it down to his cottage again, where he sold it for eighty pounds, though well worth one hundred pounds without the frame. How much more there is in the manner of doing a thing than in the thing itself, The king was the person for whose inspection the carving was brought to Whitehall, not without hope, on both the part of the artist and his friend, that he would be the purchaser. Charles was in pecuniary straits at that time, for he was almost without linen. He had only three cravats in the world, very few stockings, and no credit at the linen drapers to procure more of these absolute necessaries. Consequently, he could not readily command the money to buy Givens' carving but he gratified the pride of the artist by extolling it and shifted the expectation of purchasing from himself to his wife. He adroitly causes it to be carried to her apartment, whither he conducts Evelyn and the artist, and leaves them with her, for her to settle the matter her own way. Catherine's income was unpunctually paid, and she was probably as much at a loss for an extra hundred pounds as his majesty. The women who are about her have reason to know it, And one of them comes to her aid by deprecating the work, and this affords an excuse for not buying it. Catherine, not being skilled in the delicate art of declining an inconvenient purpose with a compliment, is regarded as a person destitute of taste and liberality, and gets chronicled by the wisest man of the age as a simpleton, while Charles escapes uncensured. It is, however, to be regretted that no traits of her generosity or encouragement of literature or the fine arts, have been recorded. Charles II, with all his follies and all his sins, was so frank and gracious in his manners, and so perfect in all the minor arts, which form an important part of king Craft, that he won the hearts of all who came into the sphere of his fascinations. He seldom resented the sarcasms with which he was occasionally assailed, because he possessed more wit than those who satirized him, and generally retorted with a repartee, the Earl of Rochester one day took the liberty of writing the following impromptu epigram on his majesty's chamber door. Here lies our sovereign lord the king, whose word no man relies on, who never said a foolish thing, and never did a wise one. It is very true, replied Charles, after he had read the lines. My doings are those of my ministers, but my sayings are my own. Addison has given a pleasant account, in one of the papers of the spectator, of the good humor with which his majesty yielded to the Lord Mayor's over-affectionate request for him to come back and finish the carouse when he had been feasting with his loving citizens in the mansion house. Certain it is that he knew how to be everything to every man. The king came to me in the queen's withdrawing room, from the circle of ladies, to talk with me as to what advance I had made in the Dutch history says Evelyn, and who can wonder that he loves him and passes lightly over his faults, startling as they must have been to so pure a moralist. He easily induced the king to employ Gibbon for the decorations in the new buildings at Windsor. I had a fair opportunity of talking to his majesty about it, pursues he. In the lobby next the Queen's side, where I presented him with some sheets of my history, I thence walked with him through St. James's Park to the garden, where I both saw and heard a familiar discourse between blank, His Majesty, of course, and Mrs. Nelly, an impudent comedian. She looked out of her garden on a terrace at the top of the wall and blank, His Majesty, standing on the green walk under it. I was heartily sorry at this scene, Thence the king walked to the Duchess of Cleveland, another lady of pleasure and curse of our nation. From an entry in a loose sheet of the salaries paid to the ladies and officers of Queen Catherine's household, while Sir Thomas Strickland was the keeper of the privy purse, we find that thirty-six pounds a year was dispersed to Her Majesty's parrot keeper, a large sum in comparison to the ridiculously low salaries of the fair and noble damsels, who attended on her in the capacity of maids of honor, who received but 10 pounds per annum each, and the mother of the maids, 20. It is scarcely credible that any gentlewoman could have been found to undertake such a charge as the superintendence of maids of honor to the queen of Charles II, for so paltry a remuneration. A few items of the payments in the royal household list of Catherine of Braganza from this sheet may be amusing to some of our readers, as illustrating the increased amount of the salaries in the present times. But the difference of the queen consort's revenue, the relative value of money, and above all, the manner in which she was too often left in arrear by the crown, must be taken into the calculation. Also the enormous amount of fees and perquisites attached to every office in the court in those days. According to this account then, Catherine's Lord Chamberlain received a yearly salary of 160 pounds, her master of the horse, 50 pounds, her secretary the same, only 14 pounds more than that important functionary, her parrot keeper. Her cupbearers, two in number, had 33 pounds yearly, her carvers the same. Her eight grooms of the privy chamber had each 60 pounds, her apothecaries, 12 in number, 50 pounds, her surgeon the same, Hugh Aston, clerk, 37 pounds, Edward Hill, brusher, thirty pounds. A lady of Her Majesty's robes for her entertainment, three hundred pounds. Maids of honor, being six in number apiece, ten pounds. Chamberers, eight in number, fifty pounds. Keeper of Her Majesty's sweet coffers, twenty-six pounds. Her laundresses are rated much higher, so are her starchers. Her musicians are motioners, according to honest tom shepherd's orthography were the best off of all for twelve of them were paid one hundred and twenty pounds apiece and the master of the music for himself and eight boys is allowed four hundred and forty pounds per annum her tailor is paid a yearly salary of sixty pounds and the shoemaker thirty-six pounds the cook thirty pounds the master of her majesty's games fifty pounds The hunting establishment of Catherine of Braganza savors of that of a Queen of England in the days of the Plantagenet and Tudor sovereigns, for there is the master of her majesty's bows, with a salary of sixty-one pounds attached to his office, a yeoman of her majesty's bows, and a groom of her majesty's bows, a master of her majesty's bucks, who receives fifty pounds per annum, and two yeomen of her harrier's. At twenty five pounds each her clock-keeper's wages are forty five pounds yearly. The countess of Penalva figures in this list as madame nurse with a yearly pension of one hundred and twenty pounds. Four foreign ladies in queen Catherine's service are quaintly designated by tom shepherd as four other of the madams at sixty pounds. There are also some brief statements relative to Her Majesty's income and the sums due to her from the exchequer and from fines, etc., which together with the amount received makes up precisely the revenue of 30,000 pounds per annum secured to her by her marriage articles. While the queen mother Henrietta Maria lived, Catherine's income was paid with difficulty by a necessitatious government burdened with the maintenance of two queens. And even at the death of that princess, the queen consort's case was not at first improved, as from Lord Arlington's statements, it appears that two years of Henrietta's income after her death was mortgaged to pay her debts, after which time the whole was to revert to Catherine. Queen Catherine was present at the death of her sister-in-law, Anne Hyde, Duchess of York. She came to see her as soon as she heard of the sudden fatal turn her sickness had taken, and remained with her till she died. She was present when Blandford, Bishop of Oxford, visited the Duchess, and Burnet, who never omits an opportunity of attacking Catherine, pretends that the bishop intended to administer the sacrament and read the service for the sick to the Duchess of York, but when he saw the queen sitting by her bedside, his modesty deterred him from reading prayers, which would probably have driven her majesty out of the room, but that not being done, she pretending kindness would not leave her. Now it is certain that the bishop, after the conversation he had just had with the Duke of York in the drawing room, had no such intention. The Duchess had charged her husband to inform Blandford or any other bishop who might come to speak to her, that she was reconciled to the church of rome and had accordingly received its sacraments but if when so told they still insisted on seeing her they might come in provided they did not disturb her with controversy the duke repeated this to dr blandford with further particulars who replied that he made no doubt she would do well as she had not been influenced by worldly motives and afterwards went into the room and made her a short christian exhortation and so departed Queen Catherine, according to Burnett, remained while the bishop delivered this exhortation and never left the bedside till the Duchess breathed her last. But James the Second takes no notice of this, nor does he mention her visit to his dying consort. A few months previously to this event, there had been a coolness between Queen Catherine and the Duke of York, which had manifested itself on the following occasion. The Duke of York had asked, as a favor of the king, that his regiment of guards might not lose its rank, when the cold stream, on the death of Monk, was given to Lord Craven, and called the queen's troop. The king gave him his word that it should not, but the queen, who James says, was not of herself very kind to him, was induced by some about her, who were very glad to put any underhand mortification on him, to ask the king that her troop of guards might have the rank next to his majesty's guards. She and others who had perhaps more influence than herself, pressed the king so hard on this point, that he was a little embarrassed between their solicitations and the promise he had given his brother. When this was told to James, he came to the king and said, He saw that his majesty was teased by the women and others on that account, and though he must consider it a hardship, he would voluntarily release him from his promise, for whatever others did, he was resolved never to make him uneasy for any concern of his. It was, in consequence, settled that the queen's guards should be called the second troop of guards with precedency over the Duke's regiment, an arrangement only consistent with her rank as queen consort, a point she appears to have contested with all the stiffness which her Portuguese and Spanish descent was likely to inspire in a matter of etiquette. Like all very proud persons, Catherine of Braganza occasionally committed herself by a more than ordinary departure from the stately ceremonies by which her movements were generally regulated. It was, however, only when her spirits were excited in the quest of amusement that she forgot the stiffness of the Infanta and the dignity of the Queen. The most notable of her frolics occurred towards the end of September, 1671, when the court was at Audley End, the palatial residence of the Earl and Countess of Suffolk, where she and the King were entertained for several days with great magnificence. While there, Her Majesty, France's Duchess of Richmond and the Duchess of Buckingham took into their heads to go incognito to the fair, which was held at the neighboring town of Saffron Walden. They arrayed themselves for this foolish expedition in short red petticoats with waistcoats and other articles of which they imagined to be the costume of country lasses, and in this disguise set forth. The queen, mounted on a sari cart jade, rode on a pillion behind the brave old cavalier, Sir Bernard Gascoigne. the Duchess of Richmond behind Mr. Roper, and the Duchess of Buckingham behind another gentleman of the court. But they had also overdone their disguises, in consequence, we may presume, of copying the representations of peasants at the theaters and court mass, instead of taking their models from reality, that they looked more like antics than rustics, and the country people, as soon as they entered the fair, began to follow them, in expectation, no doubt, that they were a strolling company of comedians, who were about to contribute to their amusement by their droll performances, but the queen going into a booth to buy a pair of yellow stockings for her sweetheart and Sir Bernard asking for a pair of gloves stitched with blue for his sweetheart. They were soon found out, says our author, by their gibberish to be strangers, meaning foreigners. Doubtless the queen's Portuguese and Sir Bernard Gasconet's Italian attempts at imitating what they supposed to be the manners and language of Essex and Suffolk peasants at a fair must have had an irresistibly ludicrous effect, independently of the queer dress and appearance of the party. The Queen and the Duchess of Buckingham were both little dumpy women. Her majesty with her dark hair, olive complexion, and large black eyes, might perhaps have borne some likeness in her short red petticoat to a foreign gypsy. But then the graceful figure and fair face of Frances, Duchess of Richmond, she who, as La Belle Stewart, had been the star of the court, must ill have sorted with such a gabardine. The mystery was, however, presently unraveled. A person in the crowd, who had seen the queen at a public state dinner, recognized her, and was proud of proclaiming his knowledge. This soon brought all the fair in crowds to stare at the queen. The court party, finding themselves discovered, got to their horses as fast as the eager throng of gazers, who pressed to see her majesty would permit." but as many of the country people as had horses straight away mounted, with their wives or sweethearts behind them, to get as much gape as they could. And so attended the Queen and her company to the gates of Audley End, greatly to her confusion. It would have made an agreeable sequel to this pleasant tale if Pepys or Evelyn had been there to record the sayings of the merry monarch and his good-for-nothing witty premier, Buckingham, when they saw their luckless wives return in such unwanted disguise at the head of the rabble route, by which they had been detected in their vain attempt to personate wenches of a low degree. It was well for Queen Catherine that her cavalier was an ancient gentleman, a knight sans puer et sans rapprocher, respected in the court and personally endeared to the king by his sufferings and perils in the royal cause. The Duchess of Buckingham was the daughter of Fairfax and bred in all the strictness of the Puritan school. Yet both she and the Catholic queen enjoyed a harmless frolic, no less than the beautiful madcap Francis Stuart, who was the soul of whim and fun, and most probably had led those discreet matrons into this scrape. Charles must have been pretty well convinced by this adventure that there were small hopes of persuading Catherine to take the veil. Their Majesties left Audley End the next day for Euston Hall, the seat of the Earl of Arlington, Charles's Lord Chamberlain, and from thence went in progress to Norwich. The King, Queen Catherine with all her ladies, the Dukes of York, Monmouth and Buckingham, and many other nobles, entered that city on Thursday, September 28th. Their Majesties were met at Trove's Bridge, the utmost limits of the city, by the mayor and the corporation in their robes, with the civic regalia, and the militia newly clothed in red, and by them, conducted to the Duke's palace, as the mansion of the representative of the House of Howard was still called, though there had been no Duke of Norfolk for a century. Lord Henry Howard, the great-grandson of the unfortunate ducal peer, who was beheaded by Queen Elizabeth, Received King Charles the Second and Queen Catherine as his guests in this palace, where he entertained them with great magnificence. The next day, the king went to the cathedral, where he was sung in with an anthem. And when he had ended his devotion at the east end, where he kneeled on the hard stone, he went to the bishop's palace and was there nobly entertained. And returning through the cathedral, took coach at the west door. Came up to the guild hall in the market place, and there showed himself to the people from the balcony, and viewed the trained bands drawn up in the market place, whence he rode to the new hall, as St. Andrew's Hall was then called, when he and the Queen, with the ladies and nobles in attendance, were feasted by the city, and the expenses were stated to amount to nine hundred pounds. Those two loyal Norfolk knights, Sir John Hobart of Blickling, and Sir Robert Paston, performed a feudal service on this occasion by placing the first dishes on the table before his majesty. Charles was earnest to have knighted the mayor at this beast, who as earnestly begged to be excused. His majesty, however, conferred that honor on that deserving physician, Sir Thomas Brown, the author of Religio Medici, one of the most learned and accomplished men of Norwich. End of section 27